So we are blazing through First Peter. Um, last week, we, uh, if you weren't here, we got through uh, the word Peter. And, uh, so we are, we are definitely blazing through. Now today, we are going to get through, um, Lord willing, unless, you know, unless we uh, get sidetracked, and we, which I'm, I'm open to that, uh, we're going to get to the end of verse 2 in First Peter. Uh, but I was just doing a little bit of math. There's 105 verses in in the letter, First Peter, and so at this speed, we should eventually get finished. I just don't know. I don't know when, right? Um, but I, you know, there will absolutely be passages that we'll we'll cover uh, much faster. Um, but right here at the beginning, is just there's just so mu- there's so much uh, packed into Peter's letter. We talked about that during the introduction last week. That you know, Peter, his letter, even though he was one of the most prominent of all the apostles and had such an incredible impact on the early church, yet he, his letter, uh, his two letters, uh, you know, uh, make up about three percent of the of the writings of the New Testament. So, so in his little, you know, letters that he wrote, he has packed a lot of incredible truths for us to know and to uh, to really. Um, you know, make a part of our lives. So I will say to you that if you missed the introduction last week, uh, I just I'm, I'm going to encourage you to go back and listen to it. You might say, "Well, how do I do that?" A couple of you reached out to me this week, and I actually sent you a link to it. I was waiting for Steve to get back into town, but we'll we'll make available this week um, the audio from from last Sunday, which is the introduction, and then the, the teaching from today uh, for you to to go back uh, if you want to share it with somebody, or if you want to go back and review it. Uh, but I do think that the introduction is is particularly important because uh, we talked last week uh, about Peter and and just wanted to try to understand who this guy was and why he was writing this letter. And if you if you don't understand that, you might miss out on some of the uh, you know some of the impact of, of some of the statements that Peter makes. Okay, so uh, so I want to encourage you to do that. Now we'll ask. I did this last week. Because uh, I'm encouraging you to, to read this letter. It takes about 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, I want you to, to maybe even read it every week. It doesn't take very long. So I just want to ask the question again. How many of you had the opportunity this week to read First Peter? Raise your hand up for me. All right. So I'm glad you had that opportunity. But how many of you actually read First Peter this week? Okay. But if you didn't, if you haven't read it recently, just go back and read it again. It doesn't take very long, but uh, I am a big proponent of reading the letters in the New Testament in one sitting. Uh, if you if you have never done that with with all of the different writings, the letters in the New Testament, it really can change your perspective because you get this overall view and you wind up really picking up on oh wow they're they're covering a topic or a truth multiple times throughout this letter in different ways and. Um, and I just I think it's an, an encouragement to read letters in one sitting. So, uh, so let's recap briefly. Uh, if you were here last week, we don't want to take a lot of time doing a recap. But who wrote the letter, First Peter? First Peter. <laughs> <laughs> we talked last week. There was a little bit of debate, but it's not a real serious debate about who wrote the letter. But it was uh, it was the apostle. You know, it was Simon Peter, and he introduces himself as Peter. He uses his name that Jesus gave to him uh, whenever he introduces himself at the beginning of this letter. And so then the next question that I want to recap is, when did Peter write this letter? What did we say last week, and what do, what do most people 
agree as the date that the letter was written. Yeah, the mid the mid sixties AD. That's important because there was something going on about that time that more than likely had a big impact and seems to have had a major impact on why he wrote this. But what was that circumstance that was going on? Somebody explain that to us real real briefly. Yeah. Yeah, was, this letter was written either just before or maybe even during uh, this this in Evil, evil man named Nero, Emperor Nero, that uh, that was that was persecuting Christians in a, in a just a terrible, terrible way. And we talked last week about that, about some of the things that he was doing. Uh, it, it's really unimaginable for us to think about people that we know and love being treated and dying the way he chose to put them to death. So we spent a lot of time last week. This is the last thing I want to recap. We spent a lot of time last week just talking about Peter's life. We, we brought up a lot of verses of Scripture. You guys brought out you know, tons of passages thinking about and talking about Peter's life. But give me a statement or, or even a sentence, but a statement that summarizes the work that we see in Peter's life throughout his time walking with Jesus. Give me just a statement or a sentence that kind of summarizes the work of God in Peter's life. Grace. Grace. What else? Simon Peter, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Yeah. To me, that encompasses so much of it, all of it. I put down God is faithful, God is kind, God is patient, God is good, God never fails. As we saw last week, Peter's life was a, an, such, a, such a roller coaster. He would go from uh, in this, apparently in the same day from uh, you know, times of just glory, making a, a statement that would be so profound and so amazing and he would be uh, accommodated on what, what just took place to times of shame where he would get rebuked by the Lord uh, for something that he, uh, that he says or, or, uh, or even at times does. So that's Peter. So go back and listen to that if you don't mind. Listen, listen uh, as we read aloud our, our uh, first two verses that we're going to look at today. So Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are left exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bith- uh, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So this is where we're going to be today. We're going to look uh, at first the second part of verse 1 where he says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So there are three things that we see here about this audience that Peter is writing to as he opens up this letter. Three things that he says about them that we see in this verse. Tell me what those three things are that we that he says about them. About who they were. Alright, so the first one is that they are elect. What else? They're exiles. And then what's the third thing? Yeah, They are of the dispersion. So we want to talk about all three of those and just try to understand and make sure we are, uh, we are really clear on what these three things that, that Peter says about them, what, he, what he's trying to say. So first of all, he says, to those who are elect. 
to those who are elect. Um, let's think about that for just a minute. Those who are elect. That's not really, is that an important word in the New Testament? In the Bible? Um, I would think so. Some translations actually use the word chosen. And so we, you know, that, that might be a, uh, another word that, that we use that might help us understand what it means. The word means to select, to pick, to choose. And over and over and over again, Peter uses that theme or that word, that, sh- that word chosen or elect. And I just wanted to point a few of these out to you as we talk about it. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, As you come to him, a living stone, talking about Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Chosen and precious. And then again, in chapter 2, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. And so Peter uses that word chosen in talking about Jesus in the sight of God chosen and precious. He once again uses it in chapter 2. He uses it at the end of chapter 2, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious again. So my question to you this morning in thinking about this word chosen, and in particular thinking about when Jesus was chosen, when was Jesus chosen to be a living stone or a cornerstone? When did that take place? When was he chosen to, to be that? Yeah. Revelation chapter 13, talking about the beast. It says, All that dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So I just want you to understand this morning that that even Jesus is referred to as one that was chosen. That from the beginning, from the foundations of the world, even before God knew the plan, of what would happen. God knew that Jesus would come and would be slain for the sins of the world. And then I've already said this verse, but we've got it uh, in chapter 2, verse 9, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So again, we're just seeing this word over and over again. And then in chapter 5, I mentioned this verse last week, but... Peter says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. We talked about who that might be and why that might help us understand where Peter was when he wrote this letter. But Peter uses this word over and over again. He actually uses the word chosen more than any of the other letters that were written in the New Testament. I went back and looked just to see how many times that word was was used, like who used it the most often, and it was actually Peter. The other letters I saw maybe one time, or at the most two times, it was uh, this word was used. But then we see in in First Peter he uses it multiple times. I'm only pointing that out to let you uh, begin thinking this morning about Peter's understanding of the word chosen. Why do you think it is that Peter used this word so much? Think about Peter's life. Think about where he started. If you and I were going out picking people to follow Jesus, would Peter have been one of the people that, that we picked? Would we have gone to the, you know, to the, the sea and 
look for fishermen to follow Jesus, or would we have gone and tried to find people that were that were filled with knowledge or filled with understanding about about God, gone maybe to the synagogues looking for somebody? I think Peter understood what it meant to be chosen. As we think about his life, think about where he started, think about all throughout his his time walking with Jesus for those years, and then the time even after Jesus went to be with his father, and then he wrote this letter, all the things that Peter had experienced in his relationship with God. In John 5, let's read this together. Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, he may give it to you. So Jesus tells his disciples that they didn't choose to follow him, but he chose them. I chose you. And he not just chose them only to be his followers, but also to be his representative to the world. So again, I want to ask the question, when did God choose them? When did that take place? Yeah. And the foundations of the world, God chose. I'll say to you that you can't separate this idea of God choosing as with, with another word we're going to look at in a few minutes, which is the foreknowledge of God. We're going to tie those together a little bit later. But for now, just know that when we talk about God choosing people or choosing someone, like Jesus being chosen from the foundation of the world, here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 1. Somebody read that aloud to us and let's see what Paul has to say about God choosing. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, what we should, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption of himself as sons through Jesus Christ and according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. All right, so when? When did it take place? What does he say? In verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Paul even mentions in, in uh, his letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, I thought this was interesting. He says, in the presence of God in Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, the chosen angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So Paul even mentioned that the angels are chosen. And again, I would say, when were the angels chosen? They were chosen from the foundations of of the earth, they were chosen at creation. Whenever God created the angels, He already had the plan of what was going to take place, and it was His choosing of what was going to happen throughout history. So even the angels are spoken of by Paul as being elect angels or chosen angels. And I just found that amazing that God knew before creating anything that everyone, every being, He already planned on and knew. Who was going to be his? It was his choice. He made that selection before everything took place. 
in his creation. To be chosen by God means that God, before the world even existed, he created a plan. How he would accomplish that plan, who would accomplish that plan, when every detail would come about, you think about how even just the alignment of the stars and how, how things that were predicted uh, by the prophets and how they, they came to pass at the exact times that they were predicted to take place. He knew from the beginning, the middle, the end, the, uh, the beginning, the end, the middle. He knew it all before there was even an in the beginning. thinking about Acts chapter 17 when, when Paul was preaching to the men of Athens. Do you remember what he said to them? You might go back and read Acts 17 sometime later when he was preaching. He said, And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So even Paul, when he was preaching to the men of to these people that had gathered in Athens that wanted to hear about this new thing that Paul was preaching on, Paul brought their attention to the fact that God created everything and put everything where he wanted it to be, including you, where you are. God did that. He chose that. And I'll say that this morning, I know that this, uh, that this word chosen or election causes a lot of, of debate amongst believers. And I've got very, very close friends of mine kind of on both, both sides of that debate. And I would even say I've got some very uh, you know, spiritually mature friends of mine on both sides of that debate. People that I know walk very closely with the Lord and God uses them to impact the kingdom in a significant way. And yet we have this debate that has gone on for a very long time about what this word means and how does that play out in God's story. And I would say to you that it is a concept that's hard to understand. And I, the best that I can explain it, and I'm going to... I'm going to try to draw something really fancy to help you explain it. You're going to be really impressed. Already am, brother. You already are. You know, I know there's a way to demonstrate. That's okay. It's all right. It's fine. Here's my impressive drawing. All right. Isn't that amazing? Straight line. This is this is in the beginning when God created, and this is going to be at the end when God, you know, bring brings in new heaven and earth, all the things that have, that have happened here on this earth. Everything will be made new, and and the, the struggle will be over. You know, Satan will be cast away. It'll be done. And I would say that on this timeline, you know, maybe somewhere through uh, through here is where Jesus came and died, and maybe here, I'm hoping like right here is where we are. I don't know where we are on the timeline, but we're right there, uh, right there at the edge. But here's what makes this this. In my mind, this is what makes this entire concept of being uh, being chosen or elected and under, understanding how this works is that we live, we, we're, we're on this linear timeline and we can't make our brains stop thinking about this linear timeline. 
We think in terms of you know years and decades and millennial. We think in in terms of this 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 layer line and and yet God somehow is all over it. I mean, his 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 thinking is not. You know, in a few years I need to do this, and then in a few years I better not forget to do. I need to set an alarm to remind myself to do to do something else, so that everything lines up perfectly. I would say that the scripture teaches that God is not bound by this line. He was never on the line, and you and I are on this line, and we can't stop thinking about the line, the linear line, and we we think about what God did in such a long time ago. I think scripture would help us understand that the concept of God not being on this line is something that we we just can't understand. And so when God was creating, and God was choosing how all this was going to play out, in in His understanding, it was all happening at the same time. He understands it all and is there at all times and is not having to think through and plan ahead the way we do. And so that is a concept that is hard for us to understand because we can't get our minds to stop thinking about the timeline. We are linear thinkers. And that makes it difficult to understand. So there's a, an element to us understanding how it all played out from the beginning before the foundations of the earth that we're just going to have to struggle to understand because it is a concept that we don't, we can't get our minds wrapped around how God can be everywhere at one time, can know all things at, at, at all given times. There's never a time when God is surprised by anything. And it makes understanding how all of this took place from the foundation of the earth hard for us to grasp. God is not bound to that timeline, but we are. We struggle with the word chosen many times because we can't, we can't get God, you know, we're trying to put him on the timeline, but he doesn't live on the timeline. We just. So I want to ask the question. I don't want to spend the entire time going down this road, but I want to ask the question to you. When you think about the, the idea that God chose you from the, big, from the beginning of time, the foundations of the earth, how many of you are incredibly encouraged knowing that God was the one that worked and it's not you? Amen. Okay. Wow. It's always used in the context of comforting, too. Yeah. Whenever he tells us that, it's, it's meant to be encouraging. Yeah. It's not to be a debate not to be divisive, not to cause separation, but you're right. And Peter, for sure, when he wrote, and I think Paul, when he wrote Ephesians 1, it was intended to be a time of encouraging and comforting those that were reading his letter. Yeah, go ahead, Parker. Yeah, I was uh, about to mention, like, why would we spend so much time talking about that word chosen? Uh, well, I think the answer is the next word. Uh, the next word in most of your Bibles is what? Sojourner, exile, something like that? Uh, well, it's not just us that are chosen. It's, it's also the circumstances we're in. And it's almost like Peter's trying to remind us the circumstance you're in is not necessarily your fault. This rough event you're about to go through. 
But God has in mind what he wants you to go through and what you're about to go through. And he's got this in his hands. So it is a comfort when he says that. Because we're not just on our own going through this. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Yeah, I was talking to, to Leaf a little bit about that before we got started. And I'm, uh, yeah, I'm right there with you, Parker. I mean, we, we have to understand that that timeline that we're on, God's not there in the same way that we are. And so God knowing all things from the beginning and the foundation, if he, God knew who was going to be his, he knew every single circumstance that we would go through, and it's all somehow part of God's incredible, intricate plan that we would never, we can't even comprehend all the things that God is doing at the same, at the same time, and yet he is accomplishing his will and his plan in, in the world. Yeah, it's such a glory to have that all the pain that we go through turns out to work out for our good. I mean, in the end, we can see it looking back. We can see that the pain is such a glory to him that that just brings that scripture, you know, Romans 8, 28, that all things, you know, that all things work together for good. For the, the more you go through and mature, the, the farther along you walk, the more you see all that pain was, was produced the peace, peaceful fruit around you. Such a glory to him. In a few weeks, we'll We'll talk about the suffering that, that these believers were going through, and, and Peter makes that point of just that suffering is an opportunity to bring glory to God. Chris, go ahead. How important then that we, as a church, when one suffers, we suffer together. Right? If that suffering in Chris's life is meant to do what he just said, how important that I suffer with him. Yeah. And how important that as a church, if one of us rejoices, we rejoice together. Because if that is meant, then in his chosen, elect, sovereign plan, then it's meant for all of us, not just for him. Yeah. So, the, so the opportunity for God to be glorified is opportunity for all of us to glorify God through something that... that Maybe just one person is going through, but we go through it with them and bring glory to God together. Yeah. Well, thank you, Steve, for teaching us to do church correctly. Yeah. yeah. So we were chosen to be children of God before the world was created. To sum up the discussion of this word chosen, or to at least get us approaching uh, kind of the, the next verse or the next word that, that we see up on the board, up on the board. I would say that this is God's idea, all of it, every detail. No detail has been unexpected by God. He planned the entire story start to finish, and he is, he is, he is watching this plan play out the way, he, the way he designed it from the beginning. But I do want to say something about this word chosen, because I know not everybody in this room this morning, and there are, there are, uh, you know, there are a number of people, a handful of people that are a part of our church, that maybe think differently about that word, and maybe they uh, they have come to some different conclusions. So I want to say one more thing about the word chosen. Whatever you believe about what some might call Calvinism, or some might call you know kind of a part of Reformed theology, you can disagree with or still be wrestling through 
parts of that discussion. But wherever you land, you have to land on the side of God choosing or selecting those that he redeems. Whatever way or whatever understanding you come to, you have to, you have to deal with the scripture without coming up with, you know, uh, creative, you don't have to be creatively trying to interpret the scripture. Just listen to what the scripture says. The verses that we've already read this morning and whatever, whatever place that you come to as you wrestle through this discussion about this word chosen and what does it mean to be chosen. You have to come down on the side of God being the one that does the choosing. You have to understand what that means to us and what it meant to the early church as they would have understood it. How did the apostles understand the idea of being a chosen people? God selected them to be His. Peter is reminding the church that God selected them. You are chosen. Whatever you believe, even if it's different from some of the points that we teach here at at this particular church, at Atlanta Reformation Fellowship, you must have that settled or you will spend the rest of your life working to keep something that you did not work to get. And that's going to be frustrating for you. And it's going to be depressing for you. Because you're never going to be able to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish because God never intended you to accomplish that. But I also want to say a word to those that allow this issue to be divisive. I would just caution you and say be careful. Be careful, look at the other passages of Scripture that would, that would caution us on being a judge of our brothers. You know, If you come to a place because you believe in, in Calvinism that you are better than someone else, or and I want to say this, you may never say that, but if you act like it in the way that you speak about other people, I have heard some of the most uh, unloving and, and even vicious things come out of the mouth of people that, that, that hold to the truths taught by Calvinism or Reformed theology. They would never say these things publicly, perhaps, but in private closed doors it is revealed what they really think. And I would just caution you to say, listen, this is not an issue that should be a divisive issue that would cause me to say to you, I can't fellowship with you. Unless you do come to me and say that you're, you know, you're, you're working on your salvation and I'm, I'm doing all I can and I hope in the end God lets me in because of, my, uh, because of the things that I'm doing for Him. And of course, we're going to probably have some problems as I uh, share with you how, uh, how, again, how frustrating that's going to be for you. And so I'm going to say to you, be careful, be cautious when it comes to the, to the issue. But whatever you think about this word chosen, I just want to remind you again, the verses that we've looked at, that God is the one that does the work. He's the one that does the choosing. And let that be, as Greg said, a comfort to you this morning. Amen. It should humble us, brother, not make us proud. Amen. Amen. Yes. And so I'll just ask the question, it's in my notes to ask, we kind of already touched on it, but just as a reminder, why do you think Peter started out this letter that he was writing to a church that was being persecuted and possibly even uh, if, if Nero's persecution had already started, I mean heavily, heavily persecuted, why do you think Peter wanted to start the letter out reminding them that they are chosen? I think persecution in general causes doubt. 
did I do the right thing? Am I am I doing the right thing, like leading my family through this hurt and pain? You know, is this really what God wanted? And you got to remember, this was new, right? So it wasn't like there were hundreds of years of precedent for them. Maybe like, well, maybe I heard it wrong. Maybe I maybe maybe Jesus didn't really say that. You know? Yeah. I, I don't know. There's a lot that you could unpack from that. But to say that you're chosen for this is like, okay, I'm on the right path. Yeah. Yeah. What else can you think of? Reasons why Peter may have started his letter out with to the chosen to be alive. Well, many of these were many of these were you know Jews. You know, you read the whole Old Testament. God creates a people and through Egypt and brings them to a land. There's a geography connected to the Old Testament believers. Yes. And Israel. And, you know, if they had to be corrected, the, the disciples on the road would have said, oh, Jesus was going to throw out the Romans and throw out the corrupt leaders and so forth. But it's a geography involved. And there's a transition, obviously, in this letter, not to run forward, but, you know, one of the doubts will be, are we rejected? You know, because we're scattered. And scattered is just kind of like, yeah, you we'll know, the opposite of the, the kind of psychology, if you will, that they're building. And that's, so, in other words, the geography. That's a great point. You're like, yeah. what do you mean? Yeah. We're, we're God's people and we're all over? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. It's good. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so, when the movie came out, they didn't know to watch it. It's all in preparation of what we're going through now, right? What about. This is what I was thinking of. If the, if the people receiving this letter had forgotten that this was all God's plan and that God from the foundation of the, of the world had all of this mapped out and he knew how it was going to turn out, could it be possible that when they start going through this persecution and they don't remember this, that they might think in their mind, okay, what if I don't endure? What if it gets too hard and I, and I do give up? It, it seems to me that when, when Peter's writing to them and reminding them that, that in, in, in the context of the persecution they were going through, that part of what he wanted to remind them is, you know, don't give up. This wasn't your, this wasn't your decision to go, uh, to go through this or to follow Jesus. God had this plan. Don't give up. He is the one that's holding you. And, uh, and God's getting, we're going to read later, you know, God is the one that's going to be able to see this, to see this through. So, yeah, so I think that's probably, at least in part, why he would have started the letter out like that. Last thing I want to say about this, this idea of the, you know, this word chosen or elect. Is it okay for someone to admit to not having all the arguments figured out? And I would say to you, I, I hope you all can say a resounding absolutely. But while you're working through it, don't lose the encouragement that Peter was trying to bring to these people. This was God's idea, not yours. Because he does this work, he will be the one that brings it to completion. He is, he is the one that started the work, and he'll be the one that completes the work. Okay? But then we get to the next word. And it's to those who are elect exiles. The word exiles. 
So next it calls them exiles. Some translations call them, you know, uses the word strangers or pilgrims. The idea behind this word, exile or pilgrim, is someone who lives as a temporary resident in a foreign land. So in other words, their home is somewhere else, but they're not living in their home. They're living in a different, in a different land. So let me ask you this question. If, if they are living in a foreign land, if they're exiles living in a foreign land, my question is, where is their home? Where is their home? People debate this, but where is their home? The kingdom of God is their heaven. I really don't think it's, even the text says it's, I don't think the text even says it's Jerusalem or, or Israel because it says you were not a people yeah. later in Christ. So this is not the Jews yeah. that he's talking to. It's one of the best arguments as to why the, why people would say he's not writing specifically to Jews, which again, we'll talk about that in a minute because it has to do with the idea of scattered. But, yeah, you were not a people. He, that'd be an odd thing to say to people that grew up in the Jewish, Jewish tradition. Right? Well, well, I assume he was talking about their home as the New Jerusalem. Yep. Yeah. Not, not a reference to any place on earth. They're exiles from heaven. Yeah. I think Philippians 3, that's, that, I mean, this is what Paul had to say about the idea. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I believe Peter, you know, this is, uh, if this was written in the mid-60s, we're talking about a guy who has been a part of the church, walking as a leader in the church for about 30 years. And it would seem really odd to me if Peter's still referring to anyone in the church to where they started out 30, 40 years ago. Now, I think he's being specific here and he's telling us who he's talking to. He's talking to a group of people who have their citizenship in heaven and they're living as exiles here on this earth. Again, I'll just ask you if this letter was written to be an encouragement, how could him calling them an exile be an encouragement to them? that they don't necessarily expect the best yeah. here. Yeah, this if the things here don't go the way you know you want them to go, they're just not supposed to go the way you want them to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's also to remind them that they're not part of this world. They're they're, they're different. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is not your home. So don't 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 get discouraged but this place doesn't look homey. Yeah, what were we going to say, Ben? Um, just the comfort that they're not homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the trials and troubles they're facing aren't necessarily punishment for, but just a state of not being home. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I thought about the word temporary. If you're going through something really, really hard, you know, sometimes we'll say that phrase, this too shall pass, or, you know, something like that. But, but I wonder what Peter also was to say to them is, this is not your home, this is only temporary. And so don't, don't be so uh, locked in on how things are going down here that you miss the big picture of this is all just temporary. This is all temporary. So what suffering that we're going through, it's temporary. No matter how hard it gets... And I would even say no matter how good it gets, sometimes we can get really uh, caught up in how good things are going. 
And again, just reminding you that even if things in your life are going, you know, peachy king, it's all just temporary. Everything that we go through in this life is temporary. This is not our home. And I would say to you, you know, what about us? You know, isn't the same true? Isn't that that same thing true about us? That our citizenship is in heaven. We are foreigners. We are exiles. Do we live that way? I know um, friends of mine that have gone to the to the mission field. You ask them when Noah comes back. We'll, we'll ask Noah about his his time in Ireland. You know, do you think there's ever a day that Noah woke up? And forgot that he was on a mission trip. You think there was ever a time that he woke up and he was in his mind, he was just thinking, This is my home. This is where I live now. And I've talked to him multiple times throughout it, and he he longed for being back with his family. He longed to be back with you guys. He missed that fellowship. But he knew that he was on a mission field. Gerald. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if this might all, that reference to both chosen and exiles, if that might not uh, call their remembrance of Jesus' words, John 15. Jesus says, uh, you know, uh, the world hates you, know, hates me first. You're, what you're going through, I told you this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. They are, they are going to hate you. And he goes on to say, if you were of the world, the world would love you because you're not of the world. Mm-hmm. I, I chose you out of it. So again, you get both of those themes, the chosen and the alienation. Uh, so it's a, a memory. Yeah. Jesus said. Yeah, Jesus said it. And he's reminding them of it. Yeah, amen. So this truth of being a foreigner in a land that's not your home. I just was thinking this week about how how that could and should impact our daily lives. Just a reminder to you, Peter was writing this letter to the, you know, to the church in Tucker that's you know that we're a part of. And he was reminding us that we are foreigners. How would it impact us? If you live your day your days every day, waking up, being reminded that this is not your home, how might that impact our lives? What would it look like if the Christians in America were to live like they were strangers and foreigners here? What would it look like if we lived like foreigners and strangers in this land? I just wanted to remind you what Peter was reminding them of, that no matter what you go through in this life, no matter how difficult or even how good it is, remember that this is temporary. This is not your home. Um, You're in a foreign place. We ought to long for what is to come. Whatever that looks like and, and whatever Jesus does when he, when he brings in this new heaven, new earth, that the scripture tells us that no eye seen, no ears heard, what he has planned for those 11. We don't know uh, all the, the greatness, but I just know it's going to be amazing. It's going to be great. We ought to long for that day and not get too caught up in life here. But then he goes on to say to those elect exiles, of the dispersion. Alright, so they were they were chosen, they were elect. He says that they were exiles or pilgrims, but then he says they were of the dispersion. And so this gets into a little bit of a debated uh, topic. I'm going to skip through it pretty quick because uh, it seems more clear to me, but the word dispersion, it just means scattered. 
that somebody has already said. The word, the word dispersion just means they were scattered. And so the question is, where were they scattered? And so I, I did put a little map in here just to show you. He, he calls out a couple uh, these, these these places here, and you can kind of see them along the top. Okay, so right up in this area here. This is where Peter's writing to. Okay, well here's... I, I, I left... I chose a map that showed Peter, I mean, uh, Paul's missionary journeys, because you can kind of see it's a different area. Peter's writing to these uh, these believers in, in what would be modern day Turkey, but this is a you know a really large area of land. So it wasn't like he was just writing to just one church or one specific uh, group of people. So they were scattered all around these provinces here that he mentions. It wasn't a small group and a very you know, specific group. It was really written to the, the church as a whole, and it would be passed around to all the different churches in that area. And so the debate there that people get into is, what did he mean by scattered? We kind of touched on it a little bit already. Was he talking about Jewish people that, that had, you know, they were in Jerusalem, they got, to, you know, they got scattered 20 years earlier or 30 years earlier? And I just don't think so. It doesn't seem like it would make much sense to me. Somebody had already pointed out that, that later he refers uh, to them as, you know, at once you were not a people. So again, it just doesn't seem like that would fit in my way of thinking that this is written to written to people that Peter was thinking where they started out 30 or 40 years or you know decades ago or hundreds of years ago that this would be a people that were scattered in a different way. So I'll skip through some of the verses that we're just kind of talking about that. I don't think there's too much uh, too much discussion. It's just that that word scattered or dysphoria is only used a couple of times. The other times James uses it and he is specifically talking uh, probably to you know, to, to, to Jewish people, the 12 tribes. Uh, but anyway, we'll, we'll move on. I think we get the point that these are people that are scattered believers throughout the, throughout the world. And I believe Peter's being specific because he does say specifically about them they were elect exiles that were scattered. So again, I just think believe that, that Peter is writing to the elect, both Jews and Gentiles. This area that he was writing to would have been predominantly Jew, uh, Gentiles. Um, I think Peter was writing to believers in this area that were scattered all throughout. And my question, again, thinking about why Peter would write this or say these things, now I'm just thinking, man, why would God scatter believers all around the world? Why would God do that? Man, I just think, why would he just want them to find their little holy huddle place and, and get them all together? Why would he not want to do that? What, what would be God's purpose in scattering people everywhere? Also goes back to Genesis. Spread out and multiply. Yeah. 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 Goes back to the Great Commission. And that's what I was thinking. Yeah, man. The Great Commission. Jesus to make it really clear that I did not want. I don't want you to stay here, all huddled together and join. We love, and I will say this about this church: we love the fellowship here, and we love being with you guys. But we do have to make sure that our mindset is a scattered mindset. We need to make sure that our mindset is not, man, I just, I just want our church to be 
you know, together and be happy and love each other. We have to be thinking kingdom-minded. If God wanted the church scattered, what if God wants to scatter us? We might rephrase this part of the verse. You know, this as God's chosen people living as foreigners throughout the world, until Jesus returns, his church is scattered throughout the world to accomplish his goal of reaching the whole world. Yeah. One of the things that Peter was a Jewish guy, and so when the Jews talk about they are dispersed or they're scattered, then usually that was directly connected to God's punishment. In other words, we're going to be in Israel, we're going to be in Jerusalem, and then they fall away from God, and He smacks them, and they get dispersed. Okay, so so then when Peter's writing this, and then he says you're chosen, then he's he's saying you're dispersed, not because God smacked you. Yeah. Okay, so it's a different kind of thing. But the other question you have to be you have to, which I don't know the answer to, is is he writing to people who are dispersed because they were in one place, and then those people scattered, or are they dispersed because somebody went there and said, and they started planting churches? See, that's a different, it's a different thing. It, is, it seems to me that he's saying these are places where somebody came there and they planted churches there. But either way, the choice of his language is he's, he is referring back to Jewish history to say, you know, I mean, what did Jeremiah say? He said, you're going you're gonna to go to Babylon, and when you go there, I want you to seek the good of Babylon. And so, if you wind up getting scattered because of something that God does, like, you know, a group of Christians being persecuted or whatever, and they scatter, they spread, then he's saying, well, wherever you go, Seek the good of that place, or if you if you are going as a missionary like Paul or like Peter, seek the good of that place and make people think along those lines. Yeah, yeah that's good, Jay. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, and I think that what Jay just said that would have brought such comfort to them. Any of the people that understood the concept of of God scattering because of judgment. I mean, you know, for them to be able to say, you know, this is a part of God's plan. He's got us scattered about. This is not our home. Our home is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven, as, as Paul wrote. And uh, and God, as a part of His plan, has us has us scattered. Yeah. Well, let's move on then to this next word. It's hard again hard to have that conversation about the word chosen without this next word. But according to the the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with His blood. All right, I love this this verse because it does within it contain one of the most important doctrines of a uh, of, that a, that a Christian is going to believe and understand. In this verse, what do you see? Trinity. It doesn't explicitly Trinity. say it. Doesn't use the word, but what? It's Trinity. The Trinity. Yeah. You see the work of God, the Father, God, the Spirit, and God, the Son. 
at both the work of salvation. We're going to look at this both in the work of salvation, but also in the continued work in the life of the believer. All right, so the word Trinity, in case you don't know, just means threefold. So it's, uh, it doesn't explicitly say it, but for sure we see all three persons here at work in the life of the believer, the chosen. But he starts out by saying, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In some translations, you may, in your uh, copy of the Scripture, instead of having that word elect uh, earlier in, the, in, in verse 1, your, your translation may have uh, a little bit different. It may say, in a different order, elect according to the foreknowledge. So some translations have that word elect before the word according. But the idea is the Father chose according to his foreknowledge. This is the same word that's used in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, when he says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. He was foreknown. The idea is that God, as we've already stated, God planned all of this beforehand, not simply that he knew beforehand. It's not simply that, that God, God knew what would happen, but he had no say-so in it. That's not what the word means. It was, it's more that God not only knew it, but he planned it. And that's what the word really means. The foreknowledge is more personal than just a general knowledge of all times. In Romans chapter 8, the same word is used, the same root word, Romans chapter 8 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Kind of the same idea that we would see in Jeremiah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So the word foreknowledge emphasizes God knowing us personally. God knew us, along with every detail of our lives, from before we were born all the way through the end of our days. God knows us. He knows everything about us, including what we've gone through, what we are going through, and what we will go through in the future. So again, knowing the purpose of Peter's writing this letter, how might that be an encouragement to his, to his audience? How might they be encouraged to be told that they were known in this kind of way? You think that would have encouraged them? Self-evident, yeah. Yeah, man. I hope it encourages you. Again, if you're going through a trial right now to know that God not only knows that you're going through the trial, but man, God knew you and knew every detail of your life and planned every detail of your life from the very beginning. He knows where you've been, yet He chose you. He knows where you are. He's going to care for you, and He knows where you're going. And as that song that we sing, He's going to hold you fast. Can right, I point so, out, yeah, um, if you are struggling with this, I think the thing that is most objectionable is the flip side. Yeah. As it says in First uh, Peter two, they stumble. It's talking about unbelievers. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Yeah. But you are a chosen people. It's 
it, I think that people who struggle with this, and I, I and I can feel it. Yeah. Um, I can feel it in my heart right now. Is that well? That means that God destines some people to go to hell, yeah. and that is um, that's a hard thing. Right. But it's interesting as how I, I, I don't mean to be flippant on it, but it's it's we have to take from God's word. The, the truth that, that there's not a lot of um, importance put on that in the scripture. It's just very starkly, frankly stated. Yeah. And then he moves on, and it's like the focus is on believers, not on unbelievers. And it's, it's a difficult thing, um, but it is just the truth. Yeah. I mean, it's just plainly stated. It's a, it's a difficult concept for us to understand and to. You know, at times even be okay with like we don't understand God why, but it just brings us back. We have to go back to that place of saying, you know what, you know, when Job was questioning God and God just said, look, where were you? I'm I'm the one that did all of this. You did nothing. I'm the one that did all this, and I just have comfort in knowing that one day God will, you know, it'll be clear and we'll understand it. And I am confident that uh, that whenever God allows us to understand, you know, the, we're not looking through a glass dimly. We have an understanding of what God has been doing throughout eternity, you know, past, that, that we'll understand it in a, in a complete way. Um, yeah, and I, I appreciate that, Greg, and I, I agree. That is, the, that is one of the biggest challenges, and we'll get, when we get to that verse, we'll, we'll do our best to, you know, to bring some, some understanding to it. So, all right, so he says, though, uh, let's kind of go through this next part. So, according to the foreknowledge of God, and then he says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. So, what role does the Holy Spirit play in God's eternal plan? He always sets us apart. What's that? He sets us apart. He sets us apart. Yeah, I mean, that's what the word, right? That's what the word sanctification means. It just means that God, the Holy Spirit, Sets us apart. He says, "So God, God foreknew us. That was a, that was His plan. He knows us and knows every detail. And God, the Spirit, set us apart. To be set apart or holy it refers to the idea that Peter was writing to those that were not of this world. So Mike brought out a verse that I also wanted to bring out. Really, the idea is that, as Jesus said." You know, Peter was writing this to a, a group of people that uh, that were set apart. They're not they're not of the world. They're set apart. They're a part of another place. So the Father chose them. The Spirit then set them apart from the world. It's so easy, I think, for us to to forget this truth. So let's say it again. Who is responsible for setting us apart? Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Is this a one and done thing, or is this something that, that he continues to do even after we become a follower of Jesus? Yeah. He continues on. What are some of the ways that the Holy Spirit will continue to set us apart? Trials. Yeah, trials, conviction. I was thinking about the church. Sometimes he will use the church to continue to sanctify us. We joke about how uh, you know children and wives or husbands can be a part of that sanctification process. 
but, but it's just such a, an amazing thing that the Holy Spirit is at work in us from the moment that He brings life to us, ongoing, all the way through the completion of that work, the Spirit is at work sanctifying us, setting us apart. But then we see the, the work of Jesus. And I want to skip to the... Let me skip ahead for just a second. So the, the sprinkling of blood, what is that referencing? What does he mean by the sprinkling of his blood? It's a reference to the Passover lamb, I think, the practice yeah. that the priest would sprinkle the altar with the sacrificed animal yeah. to uh, set it apart as holy. Yeah. Sometimes they had to do a covenant. Sometimes they sprinkle blood at covenants. They were, you know, sometimes at the ordaining of priests, there would be sprinkling of blood. But either way, the blood of Jesus is where we find forgiveness of sins. And I think that's part of what he was what he was wanting to get to in thinking about the sprinkling of blood. So the Father chose them to be set apart. The Spirit does that work in the life of the believer, and then Jesus sprinkles us with his blood. So we are forgiven. All of those things that we mentioned about sprinkling of blood lead to, I'm going to go back, for the obedience to Jesus Christ. So I just wanted you to, we're going to talk about this in the, in the next couple weeks about the idea of holiness. But he just brings up the idea here that the purpose of the Spirit sanctifying us and set us apart was the obedience of Jesus. Sanctification leads to obedience. Matthew 28, don't forget, we talked about this a minute ago. Somebody brought up the verse with the Great Commission. Go make disciples and we're teaching them to observe all things I've commanded. We're teaching them to obey. John 14. I believe I've got that there uh, for us to look at. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. And I'll ask the Father and He'll give you a, another helper. With that Holy Spirit there sanctifying us, setting us apart, helping us obey. We're going to talk about that in 2 Peter eventually. So Jesus is telling His disciples here that the Father will set them apart from the world by the Spirit for them to walk in obedience. To the commands of Jesus. So if your sanctification, if your if you're becoming a believer in Jesus doesn't lead to obedience in Christ, then I would just say test your test yourself and make sure that your life truly is in Christ. The test of your obedience is not how you act around church folks, but it's really how you act around your family and at home, how you act when you think no one is watching. Or even what your mind is focused on. God chooses you to be set apart so that even your way of thinking is different from the way the world thinks. So we see the work of the Trinity in our salvation, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, set apart by the Spirit of God, and then cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And I think we can be encouraged that that work that is continuing to happen in our lives, and I think Peter intended it to be this kind of encouragement to the, to the listeners of his letter, that just like God knew you from the beginning of all time, God knows what you're going to go through, the Spirit's going to be with you, He's going to give you everything that you need to be able to walk with Him, and even when you stumble, as John taught us, even when you stumble, the blood of Jesus is still there, has paid for that sin, and forgiveness continues on. So I want to close this out with a prayer. 
Listen to the way verse 2 ends. He says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter was praying for them to have grace and peace multiplied. And why would that have been such a timely prayer? Going back to the why he wrote this, think about the timeliness of that. Why would that be such a timely prayer for these scattered pilgrims? Peter was praying for them to have God's favor and God's peace. And so today as we were, as I was thinking about our time together and closing it out, I just wanted to pray that for you. God's favor in our lives, even when we're going through suffering, no matter what we're going through in this life, God's grace and God's peace coming to us, being multiplied. What an incredible way to end you know, the time today is just to pray for God's grace and peace to be with us. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.